Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Good. I see lots of people that have been at the beach, so thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for sending all those pictures and making us jealous on your Facebook pages. And uh, But we're glad to see a lot of you guys uh, back with us this morning. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. If you're new with us, if you're uh, visiting this morning, uh, we're in the middle of a study through the books of First and Second uh, Samuel and First and Second Kings. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about Solomon. Uh, we know that, that Solomon was incredibly wise and sometimes incredibly foolish. But he is reigning over Israel in a time of great uh, prosperity and a a season of peace. And so this morning, we're going to start out in the book of 1 Kings. So go ahead and open your Bible to the book of 1 Kings. And we're going to be looking at um, chapter 5, looking at verses 2 through 5. But actually, we're going to be walking through chapter 5, chapter 6. And chapter 7. Yes, I know there is a ball game that tips off here momentarily. So, I am aware. Now, I just want to point out that here at Providence, we have six elders on staff. Or six elders, not on staff, all of us, but three, three lay elders, three staff elders. And in those six elders, we have John, who's a very good carpenter. We have... Joe and Jeff, who are math guys. We have Jeff Shaver and Steve, who are engineers. And somehow, they thought it was a good idea to let the musician do the, preach the sermon on building the temple. So, <laughs> this is what you are dealing with today, just to put that out there right away. Yes, I do lead a, a mission trip down to... Uh, to to, uh, Dominican Republic to build a house, but there they just kind of say, do this, okay, I'll nail this here, do this, do this. I was on a mission trip at one point uh, years and years ago in Appalachia, uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, and we were helping a lady uh, build, uh, kind of fix her house up a little bit, and and they put me up on the roof, uh, tacking in, you know, doing some shingles, and uh, apparently there's, you know, you got to line those up pretty good, and so I'm up there just kind of tacking, tacking away, you know, and I get the, the tap on the shoulder, like, Chad, this is from a uh, godly, godly man, Brother Jim, Jim Tudor, had this deep voice, had this big, gnarly beard before big, gnarly beards were in style, and, and uh, he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, Brother, I think your talents could be used somewhere else uh, <laughs> in this building. So there you go. I'm just throwing that out there. Chapters 5 through 7 are full of detail. But we're going to kind of, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 kind of set us up. So turn with me there. We're going to read that. And Solomon sent word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under, his, under the soles of his feet. 
But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so what we see here in chapter 5, David wants to build the temple, but God tells him it's not your time, it's not time for you, and that's not what I have for you, but your son is going to do that. And so Solomon works with Hiram, the king of Tyree, to get the lumber and the labor to build the temple. And then we see, we jump into verse 6, and verse 6 goes into, I'm I'm sorry, chapter 6, chapter 6 goes into great detail, and I mean great detail, of the dimensions of the temple, the materials that are used in the temple, the way that they uh, create the materials that are used in the temple. They, they, they chisel all the stone off-site so that the site remains relatively quiet. They do all these details that we see in chapter, in chapter 6. We see in verses 2 through 10, they describe the ex- exterior of the temple. Verses 15 through 30 describes the interior of the temple. Verses 31 through 35, the entrances of the temple. And then verse 36, we see the courtyard of the temple. It took Solomon seven years uh, to complete. And then we jump into chapter 7. And chapter 7 goes into great detail about Solomon's palace. Now, Solomon's palace was way bigger than the temple. It had five different uh, sections to it, and it took almost twice as long to complete. It took him 13 years to complete the temple, or the, the palace. And so that kind of gives us some, a little bit of insight into Solomon and, and, and to his, his heart. And so that's what we have in these three chapters These chapters are full of great detail and not a lot of narrative at all. There's not a lot of story there. And so that could lead us to ask, like, why why is this here? Why do we have three chapters that are just describing how many cubics this was and how many, you know, cubics this was and who even knows what a cubic is and, you know, all, I mean, why do we have all this? What is the, what is the purpose of this. And so to think about that, we need to look at the biblical storyline of the temple. And the biblical storyline of the temple begins that in the beginning God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, a garden. He gave them a sanctuary. Eden. And it was there that he would meet with them and he would walk with them and talk with them in the cool of the day. And because of sin, they were banished. Later, God's people wandered in the wilderness and God gave them the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a movable sanctuary. 
And this tabernacle had a place called the Holy of Holies. And the priest would go in there once a year and he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And then we get to where we are today in 1 Kings 5 through 7. We, then Solomon was allowed to build this permanent physical sanctuary. But that temple would be destroyed and the people would be carried into exile. The temple would be rebuilt by a guy named Zerubbabel about some 70 years later, but this temple was nowhere near the splendor of Solomon's temple to the point that many who were still alive and remembered Solomon's temple, when they saw it, they wept. And that temple that Zerubbabel built was added on to various times over the years until it was completed by Herod. But even in its splendor, even this magnificent, exquisite temple that Solomon had built wasn't to the scale of what we would consider like one of the seven wonders of the world. So the temple was 90 feet long. That's about the distance between home plate and first base. It was 30 feet wide. That's about the distance of a first down in football. And it was 45 feet tall. That's a little bit over four stories. That's almost as tall as the new car wash being built here in Nolensville. Who would have thought that would be the tallest building, one of the tallest buildings in Nolensville? The garden, the tabernacle, and the temple was the place that God met man and that man worshipped God. So the importance of the temple is what the temple pointed to. What the temple represented. And so if you would, turn with me over to the book of John, chapter 2. We're going to look at a a passage here. We're going to look at starting in verse 13. And I want to draw a couple of points out of this. Okay, so John chapter 2. I'm sorry I did not get the numbers of the Bible that's in front of you. Somebody have it. Yell it out for me real quick. What is it? Anybody have it? 887. All right. 887. Thank you. So, chapter, thir- or, or, chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so if you're taking notes in your, in your uh, handouts this morning, number one, true worship comes from a right understanding of the holiness of God. True worship comes from a right understanding of the holiness of God. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, for those of you that may not know, the Passover... Uh, commemorates the night the angel of death passed over the homes with blood on the doorpost. This is the story of Moses and the Pharaoh. It's found in Exodus chapter 12. If you've seen during uh, Easter, they play the, the movie The Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner. Moses and the Hebrew. I can't. Yeah, they can. I just love Yul Brenner's voice, but I can't do a good imitation, so I'm not going to try. But Moses had asked the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, uh, he refused, and the final plague was that all of the firstborn in Egypt would die unless they had this blood above the doorpost. Passover was and is a big deal to the Jewish people. Every adult male within a certain radius of Jerusalem was required to be there. And if they were over 19 years of age, they had to pay the temple tax. And they would go and they would make sacrifices to God. And so many people made long journeys for this. And when they got there, they paid the temple tax. They would make an offering in worship to God. And so Jesus is at the temple And it doesn't look like a place of worship. It looks like a carnival. Anybody ever been to the Tennessee State Fair? That's kind of what I have pictured in my brain. You have livestock running around and people selling stuff. And probably wasn't a Ferris wheel. But you know, you you get the idea. And so Jesus comes in and this doesn't look like a place of worship. It looks like a carnival. Now, we talked a few minutes ago about the, the biblical storyline of the, of the temple. This is something that God had prescribed in the, in the New Testament reading that we read. That's what Hebrews tells us, that God had given the dimensions for everything. God gave the plans for it. And God means for it to be a place of worship. One of the commentaries I read this week said that, Uh, You know, 
God, Jesus, now Jesus, God incarnate, comes in and he sees this going on. And he said, this is like the ultimate episode of the show Undercover Boss. He sees this going on. God incarnate, Jesus, or Jesus sees this going on in, in a place that God has set aside to be holy. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so remember, these people are making long journeys to the temple. And when they get there, they need something to sacrifice. Now, I am at a place in my life where coming to church is really not that difficult anymore. But I'm not that far removed from having small kids. Those of you that have small kids and still get to church on time, God bless you. You're doing great things because you know what it's like. You have to get up and you get the kids ready. And, you, you know, you, you wake them up, you get them breakfast, you brush their hair, you hope that it stays that way, you put some clothes on, you hope that they stay clean, but between the time they get from the car, or from the house to the car, and then from the parking lot into the, into the uh, church, you know, I'm glad this morning I've made it without spilling coffee on my shirt to preach, and, and so, uh, but if you have really small kids, then that amps it up even more because you have to bring like half the house, right? You got this diaper bag full of stuff, changes of clothes, everything going on. So God bless you if you have small kids and you're making it here on time. Now, think about that and think about if you had to bring along some pigeons <laughs> or maybe a sheep or a goat. That adds, that, that amps things up a notch, right? And so, these merchants have figured this out and they've started having these available for travelers when they come in. And so now you have people coming from different, all different places and maybe the places that they're coming from have different currencies and so they have to be a place to exchange those currencies. And so now, it not only looks like a carnival, but it looks like a bank as well. And these merchants, over time, you know, they started off in the city, and over time, they gradually made their way into the temple, into the place that God had designated as sacred and holy. And not only are they doing business, but they're doing shady business, right? These merchants have jacked up the prices. These money changers are charging crazy fees. It's kind of like when you go to the airport, you know, and you get to the security line, you've, you've got your bottle of water, you've got to guzzle it really fast or you've got to, you know, throw it away. They're happy to sell you another bottle of water on the other side of this security line, but it's five times as much as you would pay anywhere else in the world, right? They're happy to, to do that. And so not only was this unethical, but it was crushing the poor. Because you had to make a sacrifice. One of the priorities of corporate 
worship, of us gathering together as a body of believers, is that we should have compassion and love for one another. And Jesus looks around and he sees this lack of compassion and he's angered. It's a a righteous anger of what is going on in his father's house, a place that has been set aside as sacred. Verse 15, we see that he's fashioning a whip. I just kind of wonder what that looked like, you know? He's kind of sitting over here going, mm-hmm, okay. Now, I always like to think of, you know, Jesus stepping up with the Indiana Jones, you know, whoosh, you know, and, and driving everybody out. Apparently, this was not that kind of whip. This was a whip of cords. This was a whip that was really designed to just kind of move livestock. And so he's taking the, the, the livestock, the sheep, the oxen, and all that out of the temple. And he tells the vendors in verse 16, you know, you guys get this stuff out of my father's house. This is not a place of trade. This is a place of worship. Jesus cares about his father's house. Remember when he was a child. In Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph make this same journey for Passover. They go through the same things. They pay the temple tax. They make the sacrifice to the Passover's ended with the, the Feast of unleavened, unleavened Bread. They have the feast and then they're headed back home. And there's a huge crowd of people that's going with them and, and they assume that Jesus is in this crowd of people. And they get to a certain point and realize He's not. And so they have to turn around and go back to find Jesus. And three days later they get back to the temple and they find Jesus at the temple. And he's talking with the, the leaders there and he's asking them questions and he's, he's telling them, you know, he's, he's astonishing them with his knowledge. And Mary says to him, Jesus, why, why have you done this to us? Why have you made us worry like this? And what's Jesus' response? Why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And Jesus, because he is God, has a right understanding of the holiness of God. And my question is, do we understand that? Do we really understand or even think about who it is that we sing to in here? Who it is that we pray to here? Or do we just show up? Sometimes cold, sometimes indifferent, When we lose sight of the holiness of God, 
worship becomes ritual to us. Or we become consumers of the church. Only concerned about how the church can serve me. Are my needs being met? True worship is a right understanding of the absolute holiness of God. The God who created everything that we know. Everything that we know and everything that we don't know. Everything we understand and everything we don't understand. This is the God who stands outside of time and space and yet hears our prayers. Hears us when we pray. And dwells in the praises of His people. This is the God that we worship. R.C. Sproul writes in the holiness of God. God allowed Moses to see his back, but never his face. When Moses returned from the mount, his face was shining. The people were terrified. They shrank away from him in horror. Moses' face was too dazzling for them to look upon. And so Moses put a veil over his face so that the people could approach him. This experience of terror was directed at the face of a man who had come so close to God that he was reflecting God's glory. This was a reflection of the glory from the back of God, not the glory of his face. If people are terrified by the sight of the reflected glory of the back of God, how can anyone stand to gaze directly into His holy face. This is the God that we worship. And this God deserves true worship. Not dry, indifferent, self-centered ritualism. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Are we consumed by God when we walk in these doors? To worship Him, to read His holy word? True worship comes from a right understanding of the holiness of God. Number two, True worship comes from a right understanding of who Jesus is. Look at verses 18 and 20. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
The Jewish leaders are asking Jesus here, what right do you have to come in and disrupt the way that we're doing things? And Jesus gives them an answer that they really don't understand. You can... Jesus says, I'll destroy this temple and build it back in three days. You can build this temple in, in three days. It took years to build this thing. Even Jesus' disciples, you know, must have been going, Jesus, you're a really good carpenter. <laughs> but, but, I mean, we're talking like, this is a, this is a big undertaking here. You're I mean, we even see that in verses 21 and 22 when John, John is writing and he's looking back and he's, he's saying, you know, we didn't see it then, but we do now. Look at that, verse 21 through 22. But when he was speaking about the temple, or but, sorry, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John's looking back on this and saying, I remember. I didn't get it when he said that. But now I see. He was talking about his body. He was talking about himself. His own body. The body where, like the temple, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The body that is the fulfillment of everything that the temple meant. That the temple pointed to. And now is the center of all true worship. And remember, we talked about the Holy of Holies. So the Holy of Holies had four columns. So columns, you know, kind of like this. Two more in the middle here. And then across the Holy of Holies was this veil, was this curtain. And it was thick, thick curtain. And it was the veil that separated God from man. And so only the priest could go in once a year and make atonement for the sins of the people. We see in Mark 15 when Jesus is on the cross and he let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. That veil, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And Jesus, the better priest, made the ultimate atonement. And we are separated from God no more. Amen? Jesus was not only cleansing the temple, he was replacing it. And John, here in verse 22, is reminding us. He's reminding us of this. He's reminding us that the resurrection changes everything. 
Look at verse 22 again. He says, When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this. And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection changed everything. Jesus called His shot. You can tear it down, but in three days, I will build it up. If Jesus is resurrected, if He is alive, then He is who He says He is. I'm going to say that again. If Jesus is resurrected, if He is alive, then He is who He says He is. And that changes everything. It means, as Tim Keller says, if He is who He says He is, then I have to listen to everything He says. Because He is exactly who He said He was. He called His shot. He said, tear it down and I'll raise it up again in three days. And that's what we see in verse 22. The disciples remembered that He had said this and they believed. What does that mean for us? Worship is not about a place. It's about a person. Now listen, we are exceedingly glad for this place that God has given us. We are exceedingly thankful that God has given us this place for us to come together. But if this building is torn down or if it blows away or if it burns up in a fire, the church does not cease to exist. And this body will find another place and we'll meet together because worship is not about a place, it's about a person. We meet God through Jesus, not through the temple. Jesus is the new temple, the better temple. And if you are here this morning and you're not a believer, look to Christ, the one who conquered death, the one who made the ultimate, permanent atonement for sin. Look to Christ and find eternal life. Believer, examine your heart. Do I live like Jesus is alive? 
Do I live like I really believe that? Let us be grateful this morning for Christ, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the new, better temple through whom we worship God in spirit and in truth now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this picture that we have through Scripture. We thank you that these chapters and verses in 1 Kings this incredibly extravagant temple that Solomon built point us to the new and better temple. Father, help us examine our hearts this morning. So that when we come to this place and worship, we do so with a proper understanding of the holiness of God. We do so with the understanding of who Jesus is. That we no longer depend on a priest to go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices for us. That Jesus, that through Christ, God and man are no longer separated. That through Christ we can come into the presence of His holiness. Father, we thank You. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room today who who has never made Jesus Lord and Savior of their life, that today would be the day that they wouldn't leave this place without talking to someone, that they would look to one of the elders or look to their neighbor, to the person sitting beside them and say, I need you to tell me what it means to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I pray that today, Father. I pray that you would draw people unto yourself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for speaking through these passages as imperfectly as it was delivered, Father, that you would use this for your glory.